Most of us wrestle with some combination of fear, worry, or anxiety. For some of us, it's a daily battle. But the reality is, everyone worries about something. I'm Adam Hamilton, author of the new book and Bible study experience, Unafraid, Living with Courage and Hope in Uncertain Times. Over a five-week period, we'll explore the most common worries and fears experienced by Americans today. We'll consider the anatomy of fear, the actual physiological processes behind our experience of fear. Then we'll explore proven practices to deal with our fear and to look at the important role faith can play in helping us live unafraid with courage and hope. While you may always have to live with a measure of fear, you don't have to live afraid. Join me together as we will come to understand that courage is not the absence of fear, but it is the act of doing, living, and being, despite our fears, secure in God's love. Good morning, friends. Welcome to The Well. My name is Ryan Gear. I'm the pastor here. And if you're new with us, you're our guest, and we're glad you're here. Please let us know you're here by texting the word WELCOME to 480-530-7234. It'll text you back with a digital connect card. Just fill that out. Tell us about yourself and uh, you'll get more information about the well. We appreciate you being with us this morning. Today's a communion Sunday for us, and so if you'd like to participate, just have a piece of bread and a beverage ready uh, at the end of the service, and we'll take communion together. And today is also All Saints Day. It's a day when we remember those who have gone on before us. And, and so if you've lost someone you love, uh, especially this year, we're thinking of you, and we're honoring them today on this All Saints Day. And, Today is the last week of our series, Unafraid, Living with Courage and Hope in Uncertain Times. It's been based on a book of the same title by a pastor named Adam Hamilton. He's a pastor in Kansas City, and we've been watching his videos every week. We appreciate him. And uh, we've had a Wednesday online connect group that's been meeting to discuss the book as well, led by Travis and Kristen. Thank you both so much for leading uh, online connect groups while we've been in quarantine here. And today is the last week of that series. And today we're talking about fear for the direction of our country. The presidential election is this coming Tuesday. Of course, many of you have probably already voted. If you haven't, it's too late to mail in your ballot. You'll want to go to a polling location or just turn your ballot in at a drop-off location and, and vote and make your voice heard. Voting is the only thing we really have in this country. And so by all means, exercise your right uh, to express yourself and vote in this election. We don't know what the next few days will bring. We don't know what the next few months will bring. If anything is certain right now, we are living in uncertain times. And so today we're talking about fear for the direction of our country. And as a church, we do not endorse candidates. Um, I have my own views. I, I have shared those on social media and and with, with people that, that I have conversations with. But as a church, we don't endorse candidates, but we do talk about issues. We talk about things that matter because of course we believe our faith touches every area of our life and, and our faith affects our politics. And so of course we talk about issues and things that are important to us, and, but we don't tell people how to vote. And I will say that this, I believe, is the most important election of our lifetimes easily. And in fact, your vote may be one of the most important decisions you ever make in your life. This election will determine the future of America, perhaps the future of, of American democracy. And it's for all the marbles. And um, this may be the most important decision you ever make or we ever make. So let me start by asking you, what is your fear about the direction of our country? What, 
what are you afraid of? As you look in, over the next few days, into the next few months, the next few years, what is your fear about our direction as a country? I've heard two fears primarily that I just want to touch on today quickly. And the first is a fear from those who believe uh, that, that Trump's reelection will be a threat to American democracy. They know that he has attacked, uh, attacked the free press, uh, that he has alienated allies. They've heard his statements that he won't accept the results of the election unless he wins. Uh, they saw him have law enforcement use tear gas against protesters in Lafayette Square so that he could walk across the street and take uh, a photo of himself holding a Bible upside down in, in front of a church. They know there are now barricades around the White House that were not there previously. He's fired people who were whistleblowers. Uh, he has perhaps tampered with witnesses even through Twitter. And they saw his debate performances. They, they read the tweets and, and what he retweets and they fear that he would do more of that in the second term and it would be more damaging to America. One of the lessons we've learned over the past four years, I think, is when somebody tells you who they are, believe them. And so that's the first fear that I'm hearing from folks who believe that, that the re-election of the current president would be a threat to American democracy. The second fear I hear is from those who are in evangelical Christian circles, it's the tradition that I came from, that I grew up in, who support the current president because they believe that they are under attack for their faith and they believe that he is defending them and that he's defending evangelical Christian faith. A couple of weeks ago, I posted a link on my Facebook account uh, from the Holocaust Museum. And it was a link about how so many churches supported Nazis in, uh, in Nazi Germany. And, and how could that happen? And, and to be clear, I didn't, I didn't write anything in that post about our current situation. I believe it has uh, application to our current situation, but I didn't write anything like that in the post. And a man messaged me through Facebook Messenger. He didn't comment publicly on my Facebook page, but he messaged me privately. And he wrote that as an evangelical Christian, he believes that he is under attack by liberals in America who want to take away his freedom of speech and his freedom of religion. He called them in the intelligentsia, kind of liberal elites who want to take away his religious freedom. That was his response to a post on my Facebook page about, about Nazi Germany. I found that interesting, but it makes sense to me because I have heard that fear repeated essentially throughout my entire life. As a teenager, I remember Christian rock songs about how we're not ashamed to speak the name of Jesus, as though we should be ashamed, or there are forces in our culture that are shaming us for being Christians. Or the song Jesus Freak, what will they do when they find out I'm a Jesus freak? What will they do when they find out it's true? And there, there, somehow that, that I had to hide my faith because there were forces in American society that were attacking Christians, that we were being persecuted for our faith and, and that, you know, I, I didn't have to be ashamed. I didn't have to be afraid of these forces in America that are attacking Christianity. That's been in the water my entire life, that the world hates our faith and they're coming for us. They're coming for our faith. And so there is this this sense among some more 
conservative Christians, evangelical Christians, that they are being persecuted for their faith in America. I remember when the Columbine shooting happened and uh, reportedly one of the shooters asked uh, a girl who was a student at the school if she believed in God and she said yes. And then he killed her. And there were books written about her as a martyr. And, and those books were sold in the evangelical you know, youth ministry circles I was in, in in the 90s, holding her up as an example of, of an evangelical Christian who was persecuted in America, and, and she was martyred for, his, for her faith. It was later discovered that that's not what happened, that there was another girl in the school who was shot, and she said, oh my God, somebody help me. And one of the shooters walked up to her and said, do you believe in God? And she said, yes, no, I, yes. And he didn't shoot her. She, again, she was shot once at least, but she lived. That the story that had been marketed about this young girl who was a martyr at Columbine High School was not even true. But it fed into that persecution belief, that, that persecution and martyrdom fear that I experienced as an evangelical Christian at that time. That, that apocalyptic fear of persecution, of martyrdom, is, is baked into American evangelical Christianity. And that's, that's the second fear I'm, I'm hearing um, as we look you know, to this presidential election. Of course, many evangelical Christians are, are single-issue voters. They vote on the issue of abortion. And they believe that overturning Roe v. Wade will, will uh, you know, stand for what God uh, wants them to stand for. In, in the United States, of course, if, over, if Roe v. Wade is overturned, abortion will become a states' rights issue, just like it was before. And women who live in more liberal states will have access to an abortion. Women who live in more conservative states will not have access to an abortion in their state. Of course, that means that women who have some financial means would just be able to afford to travel to a state that allows abortion and have an abortion there, who would really be affected are women who do not have the financial means in those conservative states to travel to a more liberal state to have an abortion there. So overturning Roe v. Wade would just make it harder for poor women to have an abortion, but many Christian voters vote simply on the issue of abortion. And of course, since the Supreme Court ruled that same-sex marriage is legal in the United States, that has been one of the primary sources of energy among evangelical Christians as they vote and, and as they believe that you know, liberals are persecuting them, that they might have to you know, bake a cake or, or officiate a same-sex wedding. And of course, there's no one who suggests that churches or Christian colleges should have to do something that's against their religion. But that's the, that's the second fear I hear as we look at this upcoming election. First, the fear that Trump is a wannabe dictator. And the second fear is that somehow Trump is a savior, a protector, protecting evangelicals' religious freedom. If I could, I'd like to share my fear. This is what I fear personally as I look you know, toward the future uh, of our country. I fear that this election will not be the end of the conflict that we've been seeing over the past few years. My fear is that this election will not be the end of white nationalism, white Christian nationalism in the United States, and that we might be in this same cultural battle for several more years. The Southern Poverty Law Center defines 
white Christian nationalism as the belief that whites are superior to other races, and it often identifies with Christianity. Of course, the most famous example was you know, the KKK. But even before the, the writing of our Constitution, this was a battle in the United States to the extent that our Constitution called blacks in America three-fifths human. And throughout our history, this white Christian nationalism has come up again to the surface, of course, in Jim Crow laws and, and, and segregation and reconstruction before that, following the Civil War, of course, we fought a, a war about this in our country and, and then in the Civil Rights Movement. And then again, we've seen white Christian nationalists emboldened over the past few years. We're seeing the rise of militias. It was a militia that threatened the governor of Michigan. Uh, two people at least have been arrested in the past couple of weeks for plotting against Joe Biden. And we, we've seen uh, the proliferation of hate groups, a rise in hate crimes in the United States. We've seen racists emboldened over the past few years. And my fear is that we will see that continue even after this presidential election. Why? Well, to put it simply, whites will no longer be a majority in America after 2045. Demographic trends show that whites and white Christians will no longer be a majority in the United States. And so that is perhaps the underlying story of our time. That's the, the racial animus that is energizing all of the division that we see in our society. That there are people who see their power slipping away, at least in their minds. And my fear is this election will not stop that. I personally think we'll probably see some more violence uh, after the election takes place over the next few months, hopefully that begins to subside after, you know, after January. But we're seeing you know, accelerationists, people in white supremacist groups show up to protests after the death of George Floyd and, and smash windows and, and, and try to inflame violence, try to accelerate some kind of civil war that they want to bring. Of course, one example was the 17-year-old guy from Illinois who, who crossed the state line into Wisconsin and shot three people and, and believed that he was fulfilling some righteous purpose for his, for his cause. There's a song by Johnny Cash uh, that I think is just, it's just a really cool song, um, but it's also an ominous song. It's called The Wanderer. And... Uh, Actually, it was written by you too, but Johnny Cash sings the song. And it's about a religious and restless person who goes throughout life searching for some movement he can identify with. And he is disgusted by the sin he sees in the world. And, and then he goes to church, but he doesn't find God in the church. And, and then the person tries living a life of pleasure, but is ultimately dissatisfied with that. And then finally, the lyrics say this. I went out walking with a Bible and a gun. The word of God lay heavy on my heart. I was sure I was the one. Now, Jesus, don't you wait up. Jesus, I'll be home soon. Now, it's a song and it could have multiple meanings. But one potential meaning is that this is a person who is restless and doesn't fit in in this world and believes he has a righteous cause and he picks up a Bible and a gun 
and seeks to uh, inflame violence in the name of religion, violence in the name of God. There's actually a politician this week in Idaho that has been driving around in a truck with an American flag on it, literally holding a Bible and a gun as she drives, protesting the COVID-19 shutdown in her, in her city. So my fear is that we will continue to see this, this violent white Christian nationalism emboldened over the next few years, and we could see more outbreaks of violence until at some point we become comfortable being a multicultural country. And hopefully that comes sooner than later, but it could be, it could be painful, more, continue to be painful until we get there. But for followers of Jesus, living in fear, and no matter if you're a progressive Christian or an, or an evangelical Christian, for followers of Jesus, living in fear is not God's will for your life. Christians never should have to fear that we will lose some kind of battle. And for example, um, do not be afraid is one of the most common commands in the Bible. Check this out. Do not fear appears 33 times in the Bible. Do not be afraid appears 77 times in the Bible. Do not be anxious and do not worry appear 11 times in the Bible. Some form of trust, as in trust God, instead of being afraid, trust God, appears 95 times in the Bible. One famous example is from Psalm 46. Uh, the psalmist writes, God is our refuge and strength and ever-present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear. Though the earth give way and the mountains fall into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam and the mountains quake with their surging, and then the famous verse in verse 10, he says, Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. This was written at a time in which Israel was threatened by foreign powers. They faced dictators in their own country from time to time. They faced injustice and war and famine. And, and one of the most common teachings was do not be afraid that somehow they could trust God. And as Martin Luther King Jr. said, the arc of history is long, but it bends toward justice. Now, of course we vote. Of course we speak up for what is right. We take action because we want to do what is right by everybody. That's the biblical concept of justice. But we don't live in fear. We don't live overcome with anxiety because we believe that there is a higher power that ultimately will work in our world for what is right. And we can be on the right side of history. So we don't live in fear. I wanted to play just quickly uh, a segment from a local news channel who interviewed a psychologist about election anxiety. Because I thought what this psychologist had to share was, was practical and helpful. And so as we talk about living in fear, let's watch just about a two minute clip from a, a psychologist talking about election anxiety. Are you feeling more stressed or anxious as we get closer to election day? ABC Action News reporter Heather Lee sat down with a local psychologist who says that's normal. She tells us what's causing those feelings and how you can cope with them. 
November 3rd is right around the corner, and this year, Dr. Cherise Sadbury says more people seeking her help are feeling anxious. A lot of it stems from just the uncertainty and not feeling like they're in control of what's going to happen. The election is tense. There's no doubt about it. And Sadbury says with the amount of information out there, they feel overwhelmed and then they feel helpless. Like these issues are so huge and I can't do anything. Which is why she says to focus on what you can control in your life, even if it feels small. Sometimes we have to accept our limitations and be okay with our limitations. She says start by limiting how much time you spend on social media. Limit it to like an hour that week. The information is not changing that rapidly that you need to check it every single day. Next, find a hobby that makes you happy. Play games to pass the time or go on a drive to clear your mind. She says meditation is also a good way to help redirect your focus. Plus, make sure you're eating and sleeping. Those are the two basic things that as a human being we need to do, and those are the two things that we stop doing when we get stressed or overwhelmed. Also, set boundaries with people who share different viewpoints, but challenge yourself to have conversations about commonality. Sadbury believes that will help people bridge the divide. Also, she says people shouldn't be afraid to talk to someone. If you notice that there's any kind of changes in your behavior, or you're just starting to think and feel overwhelmed, like there things just feel different for you, then that's when I would say go seek help. Taking a proactive approach to mental health to set things straight before you hit crisis mode. Heather Lee, ABC Action News. That's good advice. Uh, the psychologist mentioned meditation. In the Bible, do not be afraid is often coupled with instead pray. Instead of worry, pray. And so meditation, prayer, can, can certainly reduce anxiety and help us to be on God's side, on the side of doing what is right uh, uh, throughout history. She mentioned uncertainty and feeling like we're not in control, feeling helpless. Of course, there is some truth to the fact that we're not in control. Each of us individually, we're not able to control everything that happens in this world. That's why we pray, trusting the person who, who does have a greater influence than we have uh, a higher power. And so I hope that was, was helpful. We don't live in fear. We, we vote, we act, and we want to do the right thing, but we don't live in fear. So finally, if we don't live in fear, what do followers of Jesus do? How should followers of Jesus live in this divided time we live in as we face the 2020 presidential election? And maybe we're in this, this battle for several more years against the forces that are, that are dividing our country. Well, whether you're a progressive Christian or an evangelical Christian, I believe the answer is hiding in plain sight. The answer for how followers of Jesus should live in this time in particular is found in what is probably the most famous verse in the Bible. This is the verse that, that Billy Graham, the evangelical preacher, preached for 60 years in his revival meetings all over the world. This is the verse that's held up in the end zone behind, you know, behind uh, the field goal posts when, when, when a team kicks a field goal in football. This is the verse that, that Stone Cold Steve Austin built his career on when he changed it to Austin 316. So the verse obviously is John 316. And you could probably quote it uh, without even realizing you can quote it, but let's, let's read it together. John 316 says, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. John 3.16. Who could have imagined 
when I was growing up as an evangelical teenager in the 80s and 90s, that John 3.16 would one day end up being an anti-terrorism verse or an anti-domestic terrorism verse or an anti-white nationalism verse. Because what does John 3.16 say? Does John 3.16 say, for God so loved white American Christians that he gave his one and only son? Does John 3.16 say, for God so loved Republicans that he gave his one and only son? Does it say, for God so loved Democrats that he gave his one and only son? What does John 3.16 say? For God so loved the world. The world. That whoever, the old King James says, whosoever believes in him. There's no invitation bigger than whoever. Whosoever. In, in Greek, in the New Testament was written in Greek, this word world is the word cosmos. Of course, that's where we get the, the word cosmos. Cosmos in Greek means the created order, has the idea of something being ordered. So it means God so loved the created order, the entire created order that he gave his one and only son. God so loved, the, you could say the universe. God, God so loved the universe that he gave his one and only son. God so loved the world. It's the world and everything and everyone in it. For God so loved everything in creation, everything and everybody that he gave his one and only son. God loves everyone, regardless of their race, regardless of their ethnicity, regardless of their religion, regardless of any other label that could be put on that person. For God so loved everybody that he gave his one and only son. God loves all the people of the world. That's really bad news if you're a white Christian nationalist. God loves everybody. And there is no room for hatred in the heart of anybody who says they want to follow Jesus Christ, who is the person speaking this verse in John 3.16, talking to a very religious man named Nicodemus about what it means to live a real spiritual life, to be a real follower of Jesus, to be a real Christian. This is Jesus speaking. Jesus says, for God so loved everybody that he gave his one and only son. To be a follower of Jesus is to be an anti-racist. John 3.16 says that God is an anti-racist. God loves everybody. And so perhaps in 2020, John 3.16 means there is no such thing as a white nationalist Christian. Oh, of course, in history, there are people who call themselves that. There's no such thing as a white nationalist follower of Jesus. God is anti-racist. And then John 3.16 says, we believe in Jesus. Whoever believes in him will have eternal life. Now, the word believe is often misunderstood. A lot of times people think that the word believe means that you give intellectual assent to something, like you believe that Jesus exists, like believing in Jesus means to believe Jesus exists. That's not what it means in the New Testament. In the New Testament, the word believe is a synonym with trust or faith. To believe in somebody means to trust that person, to have faith in that person. So an example might be when you get on an airplane, you believe, of course, that there is a pilot in the airplane. That, that's important. That's intellectual assent. You believe the pilot exists and that there is a pilot in the plane. But that's not what 
believe means in the New Testament. Believe in the New Testament means when you get on the plane, you put your faith in the pilot, that the pilot knows how to fly this plane. You put an enormous amount of trust in this pilot and in the skill of this pilot. That's what the New Testament means when it says believe in somebody. You believe, oh, you really believe in that pilot. And so John 3.16 is saying to believe in Jesus means to trust Jesus, to put your faith in Jesus, that the Jesus way is the best way for you to live to trust in him, to trust that he knows what he's talking about, to trust that Jesus can guide you in life. That's what it means to believe in Jesus. And in 2020, there are a lot of of people who would call themselves Christians who have put their faith in politicians or even in propaganda, in misinformation, in fake news. They've put their faith in something very different from Jesus Christ. We've seen this proliferation of misinformation and propaganda through so-called cable news. News definitely should be in air quotes. And through propaganda and misinformation and conspiracy theories that have been propagated through social media. And we've seen this assault on reality and facts and truth to the extent that, that Americans can't even agree on what's real anymore, what facts are anymore. We heard the phrase alternative facts. And so it seems like for people who want to follow Jesus, John 3.16 could mean, well, we want to put our trust in Jesus, not in politicians or in propaganda. Somebody in our church actually sent me a clip this week of a speech that was given to the Anti-Defamation League a year or so ago by, by the comedian Sasha Baron Cohen. I suppose this is, this is appropriate now that Borat 2 is out. We may be the only church uh, talking about Borat 2 this morning, but she sent me this clip of, of all people, the comedian Sasha Baron Cohen, talking to the Anti-Defamation League, and he, he's a Jewish uh, man, talking to the Anti-Defamation League about the propaganda spread on social media that has been harmful to people around the world and that has divided Americans. And he was calling on social media companies like Facebook, Twitter, and Google through you know, YouTube to do something about all of the misinformation that has been spread on social media over the past few years. And this is just a, a two minute clip. Let's check out uh, the speech of Sasha Baron Cohen speaking to the Anti-Defamation League. ...which depends on shared truths is in retreat, and autocracy, which depends on shared lies, is on the march. Hate crimes are surging, as are murderous attacks on religious and ethnic minorities. Now, what do all these dangerous trends have in common? I'm just a comedian and an actor, I'm not a scholar, but one thing is pretty clear to me. All this hate and violence is being facilitated by a handful of internet companies that amount to the greatest propaganda machine in history. The algorithms these platforms depend on deliberately amplify the type of content that keeps users engaged. Stories that appeal to our baser instincts and that trigger outrage and fear. It's why YouTube recommended videos by the conspiracist Alex Jones billions of times. It's why fake news outperforms real news 
because studies show that lies spread faster than truth. And it's no surprise that the greatest propaganda machine in history has spread the oldest conspiracy theory in history, the lie that Jews are somehow dangerous. As one headline put it, just think what Goebbels could have done with Facebook. Zuckerberg tried to portray this whole issue as choices around free expression. That is ludicrous. This is not about limiting anyone's free speech. This is about giving people, including some of the most reprehensible people on earth, the biggest platform in history to reach a third of the planet. Freedom of speech is not freedom of reach. Sadly, there will always be racists, misogynists, anti-Semites, and child abusers. But I think we can all agree that we should not be giving bigots and pedophiles a free platform to amplify their views and target their victims. So we're living in this, this brave new world of misinformation and propaganda. And perhaps John 3.16 means for followers of Jesus, we don't put our trust in politicians or propaganda or misinformation or conspiracies. We put our trust in Jesus. And then finally, Jesus says in John 3.16 that when, when we do that, we experience eternal life. And he meant life in the, next to, in, the, in the life to come, in the next life. But eternal life also starts now. And eternal life is contrasted with perishing. That people who want to follow Jesus, we value life and the worth of every person and dignity. And we work for peace, not for violence. We don't work for destruction. We don't want to tear down. We want to build up. Followers of Jesus do not want to incite a civil war and violence and death, but we're people who believe in eternal life. And by trusting Jesus and putting our faith in Jesus, we can, we can experience eternal life now and in the life to come. So perhaps the way forward for followers of Jesus here as we face the presidential election in 2020, is the most famous verse in the Bible, John 3.16. Now, in the presidential election of 1860, religion played a divisive role in the election between Abraham Lincoln and, and Stephen Douglas, just like it does now. And American Christians were split. Of course, Southern evangelicals largely supported slavery Northern evangelicals, to various degrees, were against slavery. Some were not sure what to think about slavery. And uh, Lincoln, even though uh, Northerners largely supported Lincoln, he had the difficult task of uniting Northern evangelical Christians to support him because not all of them did. Uh, Richard uh, Carwardine is an Emeritus Rhodes Professor of American History at Oxford University, and he writes frequently on the topic of religion and politics in America. And he wrote an article entitled, Lincoln, Evangelical Religion in American Political Culture in the Era of, of the Civil War. And he writes that Lincoln's faith was a continual topic of speculation. There were a lot of people who didn't think Lincoln was religious enough, and his faith was attacked often, it was questioned often. And he was viewed by some to be a skeptic, but he also referred to God frequently in, in speeches as the moral authority against slavery. 
but it was a common attack to attack Lincoln's faith. And, and Christians in America, even Northern Christians, were divided uh, for a time on Abraham Lincoln. Now, he writes that uh, during the Civil War, after Lincoln won in 1860, there were Northern evangelicals who were against slavery, but also against Lincoln. But by 1864, uh, Northern evangelicals largely supported Lincoln, that Lincoln had won over Northern Christians. He learned to include them in his administration, and that was, that was important. But at the same time, Richard Carr Dean says that there was another reason that Northern evangelicals largely coalesced in their support around Abraham Lincoln. And he said that in 1864, Lincoln's opponents, while they could use all kinds of arguments and their, you know, their politics to argue for why people should vote for them, one of the main tactics they used was overt racism, race baiting, appealing to racism to get people to vote for them appealing to white supremacy, appealing to white nationalism to get people to vote for them against Abraham Lincoln. For example, they said that Lincoln wanted to turn the United States into the new Africa. That was one of their attacks against Abraham Lincoln. They said that Lincoln's religion was, thou shalt have no other gods but the Negro. That was one of the attacks that Lincoln's opponents used against him. So one of the reasons the author says that Lincoln was able to win over the support of Northern evangelical Christians in 1864 was that they saw the ugliness of the racist attacks against him. They weren't sure what to think before, but when they saw the ugliness of the other side in the overt racism and the hatred of, of other human beings and, and viewing other people as inferior they saw it as mean and cruel and they began to coalesce around Lincoln and support him because they didn't want to be a part of that ugliness they saw on the other side. I've seen that same dynamic at work in this 2020 election and I believe that's one reason why we can be optimistic about the future. Even as we're not sure what we face over the next few days or months or even years, I believe we can be optimistic and we can trust God, the, the God of goodness and equality, the God who loves the world and everybody in it is at work in our world. And, and we can work for, for God and we can also work for good as Americans who want to follow Jesus Christ. And so instead of being afraid and overcome by anxiety, we can choose to trust Jesus that God loves everybody. And, and by believing in him, trusting him, that living his way is the best way. And that's the way that leads to eternal life, not violence and death and destruction, but to flourishing and life in a better, brighter, more hopeful future.